There are so many amazing things going on here at our church, and the way that people serve is always a blessing. I don't know if you saw it when you first came in, the, the people who are back there are welcome team to greet you. I am especially grateful for them. When you walk in those doors, you're given a gospel welcome as if you're hearing God himself say, welcome, come on in to worship me. So I'm thankful for the people who serve back there, our stewards who welcome people in as well, and then for the hidden people who are out there early in the morning cleaning up the walkway and the doors, and if there's any spray paint on the walls, they get it off. So we're thankful for those people who clean and keep it tidy around here. Well, please open up your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1. By now you should know what page it's on if you've been with us. Yes, page 1075 in that Pew Bible. And uh, by the way, we say it every week, but we do mean it. If you don't have an English Bible at home, we would be delighted for you to take that Bible as a gift and just stop in with our Connect Corner to let them know that you have it so they can connect you with somebody to show you how to study it because it is our source of life. Well, we've been in an exposition of 1 Peter now for about a month or so, and the whole series is called Stand Firm in God's Grace. And that's what the book is showing us how to do. And today's sermon will be part of that. It's called Our Incomparable Inheritance. Our Incomparable Inheritance. And I think this is a magnificent portion of Scripture. I was encouraged. My soul was sent to worship God as I studied it, and I, I hope that'll be the same for you as well. It, it's just a marvelous section. Many of us have hopes and dreams like winning the lottery or that mysterious relative who leaves you a large sum of money. It happened to a, a 17-year-old waitress, Cara Wood, she was shocked to find out that a regular customer left her his entire estate, almost a million pounds. All she did was faithfully serve him and, and help him, and, and he wanted to honor that. A greater shock happened to a young 31-year-old DJ in a local radio station of a small town. He was named the heir by an uncle who lived in a distant country, an uncle he only had met twice, and in fact, it was so much money that it was larger than the annual budget of Moldova, the country that he lived in. Now, for some people, getting an inheritance like that could seem like a dream, and it can be, but with large inheritances, often comes large headaches. Usually, there are people who would contest it, but then the tax man shows up and informs you 40% needs to go to the government. Sometimes an inheritance can be a disappointment. You're expecting something great, like a London woman who was expecting something more than a tiger-skinned rug, but that's all she got, and it came. It was mangy, it had holes in it, the teeth were still there, the eyes were kind of out of whack, and it hadn't held up well before she got it. She thought maybe she could get some money out of it, which she did. She was able to hawk it at a local antique booth and got 15 pounds for it. That was her inheritance. I don't know what you're fixing your hope on if, if you're expecting to come into some kind of money like that, but usually when we have great expectations, they never quite match up to the reality. Isn't that the case? We find that there's disappointment or difficulty that follows with it. And because of that's how life is, when we come to these amazing promises and declarations of God, we sometimes find it difficult to go all in with our expectations. It's easy to doubt that it's really all that it seems to be. 
Some of us are just so jaded that we're really uninterested in what God says. But I'm confident today that if you will open your mind and come with an open heart, that God will cause your heart to soar in praise to him. And he'll give you eyes of faith to see what he has for you. So let's go to the text. Let's read it together. And so I invite you to please stand with me. We'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And this is Holy Scripture. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The law of the Lord is perfect and it revives your soul. So welcome it today. Please have a seat. Well, here's the big idea for our text today in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. We are, find four features of the new birth, four features so that you will bless God. So the first feature is, it looks at the author, and the author is a great giver in the first part of verse 3. In the second part of verse 3, we find the hope, and it's a resurrection-rooted hope. In verse 4, there's an inheritance and it's a heavenly heritage. And finally, in verse 5, we see the security, which is a powerful protection. And we'll just go through those one at a time in the message today. Now, before we start with the first feature, just a, a little bit of a, a big picture, just looking back here. The whole letter is divided into three large sections. We're in the first section. It'll end chapter 2, verse 10. And it's showing us in this first section how true grace creates God's people. What does God do to create a people for his own possession? And so we looked at those first two verses. We dissected them, took them apart, and discovered that God creates a people that he has chosen, that he has foreknown from the foundation of the world. Well, this next larger section, it goes through verse 12. And Peter's highlighting here the certainty of our great salvation, the certainty that we can have. Now, it is so captivating for Peter. Verses 3 through 12 is one sentence in the original Greek. It's as if Peter couldn't stop even to take a breath. He was so excited about what God had done. You find no commands in this section. It's simply rejoicing in the truth that God has given us. And this lays a crucial foundation for us to be able to stand firm in the grace he's given to us. And especially for these believers at this time who were enduring hardship and difficulties, it was going to reorient them to look at their life correctly. As we look at the first part here of this section, verses 3 through 5, it, it affirms that the world's hostility actually confirms they are chosen exiles. Now, it goes against human logic, but instead of offering consolations like, there, there, it's going to be okay, in verse 3, Peter just erupts into praise. And we ask, why such joy? How can you have such joy knowing what is happening to these people? It's because what we saw in verse 2 and verse 1 is, is so 
foundational to our joy. It sustains us and drives us to rejoice in what God has done for us. It is the choosing of God that leads to delighting in him. Now, some people, when they think about God's election, they, they feel despair thinking, what's the point in prayer? What's the point in evangelism? If God has it all covered, why, why should I even bother? Friends, we don't know who God has chosen and what he's determined. We get the privilege of going out and doing what God has told us to do. Trusting that he has it set. There's nothing you can do to fail in this endeavor except for not praying and not evangelizing. Yes, God has it sorted, and that should be our confidence to go forward in joy. Now, other people, they grow proud with this knowledge, thinking, I'm elite, I'm special, God shows me. And that's the opposite of what we're supposed to experience. It should cause us to be humble and grateful. Biblical logic says that the truth we saw in verses 1 and 2 is a cause for great rejoicing. And that leads to our first feature of the new birth. This author is a great giver. And so look at verse 3. It begins, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, blessed, to call God blessed here is to declare he is endlessly excellent. It's to declare he is perpetually praiseworthy. It's a joyful word, and it's delighting in all that God is and all that he does. The the word actually is used in English as a, a eulogy. If you've been to a funeral, there's often a eulogy. It's a time to declare the goodness and the excellencies of that person who has passed, to talk about the good things they did, the impact on their life. Well, Peter is not waiting for a special service to declare the good things about God. He, he can't help himself. And after those first two verses, he jumps in immediately with, Blessed be God. And this is crucial to our standing firm. If we take our eyes off of God and look at the waves around us like Peter will be likely to sink under those waves. Well, to understand why he's blessing God, let's just look back at verse 2. He says at the very end of verse 1, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Therefore, Blessed be God. That's what our hearts are called to do and join in with him. And this verse 3, it is a concentrated Christian confession. What Peter says here is one of the most common things you'll see in the New Testament. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is distinctly Christian. At this time, Jews would often say, Blessed be the God, our creator and deliverer the one who rescued them from Egypt. And the Christians look specifically at Christ and their blessing. Paul says it in Ephesians 1, chapter 3, or 2 Corinthians eleven thirty one. 31. He says, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever. You'll find phrases like that. It was a common Christian confession. Now, in the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus always called, called God his Father. And shockingly, he actually called God my father, which you never did at this time. The Jews would use a collective sense of our father, but to refer to God as my father, that was to claim the same nature as God. In one way, Jesus said, John 10 verse 30, I and the father are one. We're the same nature, the same essence. 
He said in John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. That's a a statement that'll get you stoned in that time. They'll, They'll kill you for that kind of a thing. But Jesus was saying that he and the Father possessed the same divine nature, co-equal, co-eternal. He was saying, I am truly God. Whatever the Bible calls in the New Testament, it calls God Father. It's primarily indicating that he is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is God to Jesus in his human nature since the time of the Incarnation. He is father to the son in his divine nature from all eternity. So Jesus, after the resurrection, says to Mary in the garden in John 20, verse 17, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. He had a unique relationship with God that no one else does so that we know he is uniquely God. So blessed be the God and father of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, this is a a joy-giving truth. Three words that tell us everything we need to know about Jesus. Christians have always uttered these words with reverence and affection. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, those words together are a victorious cry of all the redeemed, all the chosen exiles. As Lord, Jesus is sovereign ruler of all people. As Jesus, it's his personal name for the incarnate son. As Jesus, he alone lived a perfect life and he is uniquely qualified to be our substitute and our sympathetic high priest. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is a title for the anointed Messiah King. As Christ, he's our Messiah, our Savior. And he's the king who will grant to each of his children a glorious inheritance, incomparable. But did you notice how this blessing, it was personal? It's to our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Peter bringing the readers and bringing us into united praise, a declaration. We all have this common bond in Christ. And by saying our, it makes it personal. This is our way to declare our Savior. So Christians, we are to bless him and no other. Well, that is astounding, but Peter wants to give us even more. And look back at verse 3. He's blessing this God who has, because of his great mercy, has given us new birth. This is the motivation of God in choosing. And this is the same kind of language that Paul talks about, this mercy of God in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Rich in his great love-driven mercy. That is our God. The funny thing about mercy, though, is our pride doesn't like mercy. (laughs) It calls attention to our miserable and pitiful condition. And no one really likes to be called out for your mistakes or your sins. But mercy says, you are desperately sick and you need help. But pride rejects this. Pride is what's behind the changing of the lyrics of one of the most beloved Christian hymns. You know, at Amazing Grace, 
How sweet the sound that saved a, no, that saved a soul like me. This is one hymn version. Saved, a, saved and set me free. That saved someone like me. Because they don't like that word wretch. It's too personal. They, they change the lyrics. But it's, if you say save someone like me, we have to ask, do you know who someone like you is? Do you know what the Bible says about who you truly are before Christ? You are wretched and helpless. You have a deceitful heart. You, you hate God. You're corrupt in your mind. Your desires are wicked. You're a slave to sin. Friend, you are a child of wrath. And until you, you know this and accept this, mercy will never be glorious. In fact, it'll just remain insulting. But in his great mercy... God offers to us a, a grace and a grace that is sufficient for our great need. Mercy means it has compassion and, and love toward even his enemies. Now, grace and mercy are related, but grace really looks at our guilt, and it, grace acquits the guilty. Mercy removes the misery that sin produces. So God, he's rich in mercy, so he can show great mercy on whomever he wills. His mercy is timeless and it is free. It's available for you today, right now. But it's impossible to receive the mercy while holding on to any notion of self-sufficiency or that you're able to merit your salvation. To receive mercy, you must abandon all hopes and efforts to earn God's favor and just receive from God what he has for you. You see, in his mercy, God doesn't just feel sorry for you and consoles you. In his great mercy, he acts. What does he do? It says that he gives us a new birth. By translating that word give, it highlights his compassion and generosity. But it's not like he, he leaves a gift and says, well, take it or leave it if you want it. Because the reality is in our sin, all of us reject the gift. None of us are going to take it. The word is much more active. Literally, it says, he has caused us to be born again. Now, most of us will admit we need a little bit of help. We all would like to have our problems alleviated. Cure for cancer would be nice. A nice, full, plush bank account. But to admit that you are spiritually bankrupt, to admit that the only thing you bring to your salvation is a sin that needs to be forgiven, you will never do this unless God comes to you first and causes you to be born again. You're not born again because you choose to believe. You believe because God caused you to be born again. You're never going to respond to God's mercy unless he first causes you to be born again with this new birth. And when that happens, you realize how desperate your need is. And you see how great his mercy is to match your every need. And then you sing, praise the Lord. His mercy is more. It's stronger than darkness. It's new every morn. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Now, in our natural birth, you get a genetic identity from your biological parents. You're born into a socioeconomic identity. You have some kind of a national identity, a citizenship. Our birth identifies us. When God causes you to be born again, that comes with a new and a true identity. So here's the author of your great salvation, and he's a great and generous giver. And he acts with great mercy so that you're born again. 
It's, it's far more than being rescued from a burning building, reeking of smoke, and standing in tatters and rags. It leads to something incredible. And that's the next feature of the new birth. It leads to hope. The hope is resurrection rooted. So look at the second part of verse 3. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What does the new birth lead to? A living hope. Now, Christian hope is not wishful thinking like the child who hopes he might get a gift for his birthday or Christmas. The Christian hope, as we heard this morning, is a certainty about what is promised. It's an attitude of expectation, and it's based on God's absolute trustworthiness. But notice that Peter says it is a living hope. It's productive. It is fruitful. It is fertile. Now, just recently, uh, someone came to our home to help fix the light in our bathroom. And the, the man made sure that the electricity was off because he was going to touch some wires. You don't want to touch a live wire. A living hope is a live hope. It is full of power, the power of God. And it's the kind of hope that isn't just waiting for something to happen. It's expecting God will help you stand firm. And it is alive because Christ is a source of that hope. And Christ is alive. See, a, a pond without fresh water will become stagnant and, and will dry up. A hope that is not connected to the living God will also become stagnant and dry up. Now, hope by its very nature is future-oriented. So Christians are waiting eagerly and expectantly for the fullness of our redemption. In Romans 8, 24, it says, For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? It's waiting for something that is yet to come. Now, in this world, we're going to have trials. Jesus told us that. And when those storm clouds are gathering and it doesn't seem like the light is getting through, living hope will pierce through the clouds and see the sun that is always shining above the clouds. And if death seems to be coming, living hope keeps you from being intimidated by death. And then it says to you, Christian, do you realize that in God's hands, death becomes your servant to bring you into God's very presence? That you were not born again to get your act together. You were born again to a living hope that is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, our hope is not living because of a resurrection event. It is living because we are now in the living Christ. The reason our hope can go on living is because in Christ, we go on living. He's our source and our sustainer. The 12th, 20th century Bible scholar Edmund Clowney wrote, Our hope is anchored in the past. Jesus arose. Our hope remains in the present. Jesus now lives. And our hope is completed in the future. Jesus is coming. Our hope, it continues in the same way that it began. How did our hope begin? Look at down to verse 23 of chapter 1. Peter says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, or, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And then in verse 25, he explains that it's the preaching of the living word that is the means that God uses to animate that hope. 
He says there, and this word, that living word is a gospel that was proclaimed to you. And so Christian, it begins with the living word of God. And, and as we remain under its authority and trust and its sufficiency, our hope continues to have life. It is through God's living word that we know about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in which our hope remains. And so Christian, cling to the word. Lock it into your heart. Memorize it. Talk about it. May it be so that if you are pricked, you will bleed the Bible. I want now to shift, though, to our third feature of the new birth. We see the author, the great giver. We see this hope. It's resurrection-rooted. And now this inheritance. It's heavenly heritage. So look at verse 4. You've been born again into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is why God caused you to be born again. An incredible hope and now an inheritance? This is amazing. He doesn't just save you, put you at ground zero and neutral and said, now get your act together, don't mess up again. Good luck. He brings you into a fellowship with him and he puts you into his eternal will. You have a heavenly heritage. Now the living hope is looking forward and so is this heritage. It's for the future. You see, we will all share, all of us who are in Christ Jesus will share the glorious benefits of his, of his eternal kingdom. This is what Paul talked about, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance. Or Ephesians 1.18, Paul's praying that the eyes of the Ephesians would be opened so that they would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What an inheritance we have. Now, for the Jews, those Jewish background Christians, they hear inheritance, they're immediately thinking of Old Testament. They're thinking about the father of the Jewish people, Abraham, and how God promised to give to Abraham an inheritance. And you remember what that was? Land, physical land. And it talks about this in Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Well, hundreds of years later, just before Israel is going to take that land, God was about to keep his promise to Abraham and give them that land. And so Deuteronomy 15.4, Moses says to all of the children of Israel, the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. So Jews would hear inheritance, they're thinking physical, tangible land. It was an earthly inheritance for an earthly nation. So every tribe in Israel and every clan in that tribe and every family in that clan would receive a portion, an allotment of that land. But Peter had in mind something far better. He, even Abraham knew that the land just merely pointed to something better. Hebrews eleven sixteen. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The land was just a down payment for what was to come. And it's what we are waiting for as well. This, this city that will come down from heaven, the new Jerusalem. Now, though this inheritance is ours, we're not yet ready for it. We, we really can't yet grasp the magnitude of what is coming. Think about here in England, you have young Prince George. He wasn't told about 
his coming inheritance until about his seventh birthday a couple years ago. And his inheritance is going to be vast. It's filled with tremendous honor and responsibility that a seven, nine-year-old can't possibly grasp. And so his parents have a planned preparation for that young prince. It includes learning how to handle immense resources and responsibility. Some of you might remember at the Euro finals, instead of wearing three lions on a shirt, young Prince George was dressed in a very grown-up suit because they were reminding him, George, you are always on duty. Get used to what's coming. Well, likewise, we, we cannot fully grasp what is coming, but our Heavenly Father is preparing us. He's planning every step of the way. Now, we're going to throw tantrums along the way. Things won't go as we plan them. We're going to get caught up in silly, menial things that, because we don't understand our inheritance. But our loving Father, He'll discipline us. He'll guide us. He's going to make us ready and fit for our inheritance. There's a deeper connection that I want you to see between Israel's inheritance and, and what's coming. So imagine Israel has taken the land and Joshua, he's speaking to them and he's going to divide among these 12 tribes their inheritance, the land. But in Joshua 13, verse 33, he says, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. So Levi, this tribe, they get no land, no tangible inheritance. But as priests they got something far better. The Lord himself would be their inheritance. God would be their portion. This is the way that God's saints train themselves to think. David understood this. Psalm 16, 5 through 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And for that, David bursts into praise in the next verse, and he says, like Peter, I bless the Lord. Asaph, another psalmist in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jeremiah endured some of the worst imaginable times. And in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 22, he says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Now, here's a connection to Peter and to us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. Christian, do you realize that like Levi in the past, the Lord, our God, is your possession, your inheritance. So Christian, blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ because he is your inheritance even now. You know what makes heaven heaven? It's not the absence of pain or suffering. It's that God himself is there. Christian, listen. Let this ignite your hope. Revelation 22, the end of the story, verses 3 and 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. 
They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light or of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus suffered on the cross, 1 Peter 3.18, that he might bring us to God, to that place, to be with him. It's what Jesus celebrated in John 14, 3, talking to his disciples. He's about ready to be arrested and crucified. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. He's not saying, I want to take you to an amazing place and I'll let you run wild. What makes it amazing is Christ will be there. Oh, Christian, is that the delight of your heart? Are you looking forward to heaven because of Christ himself being there? Heaven is so astounding that no one up there is looking down on us, wondering how we're doing. They're so overwhelmed and fully absorbed in the splendor of God's holiness. Now, we might hear something like this and again think, ah, it sounds a little too good to be true. But God made sure it's going to be true. In Ephesians 1, he talks about we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit as a down payment, a promise guaranteeing this inheritance. And through that Holy Spirit, we are given certainty that God will keep his promise for our heavenly heritage. You see, we get the assurance, we get the joy And God gets the glory. He gets the praise. Verse 4, it continues to help us understand how incomparable this inheritance is. Three words describe what it isn't. It is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It will never perish. It will never be defiled. It will never fade. It's kept in heaven for you. Now, I wish you could hear the Greek. It's got this rhythm and rhyme about it. It alliterates. You can kind of get close to it. Something like, this inheritance is free from destruction, dirtiness, or decay. Or it is death-proof, sin-proof, and it is time-proof. Imperishable means it cannot rot or decay. It is indestructible. Not like that leftover in the back of your fridge that's rotting, waiting for you when you get home. Even Israel, they had that land, but they defiled it through their sin and idolatry. And as a result, they lost that inheritance. But Christian, not so our heavenly heritage. It is imperishable. It's also undefiled. There's no moral compromise involved in it. No dirty monies waiting for you in that inheritance. Defiled is a word that describes painting over something precious, staining wood. Our inheritance is uncontaminated by sin, And because of this, no unrepentant sinner is capable or desiring to enjoy it. Thirdly, it's unfading. It has a beauty that will never diminish. Now, we know the reason florists remain in business is because those roses they sell, the young man will wilt after about five days. But this inheritance will only increase in splendor. You hear about this at the end of this letter, 1 Peter 5, 4. It promises to the faithful elder an unfading crown of glory when the chief shepherd appears. Now this inheritance, this amazing inheritance is kept safe for you in heaven. Now many of you know about Fort Knox. It has a a legendary name. It contains half of America's gold reserves and it's considered the world's most secure vault. Think about this. Surrounded by a steel fence, it's equipped with all the latest and the most modern protective devices. 
It has landmines around it and laser-triggered machine guns. The building itself is made of concrete-lined granite. It's reinforced with steel, and it could sustain almost any attack. And if that weren't enough, if you were to get past that, there are guards on duty 24 hours a day, and there are 40,000 soldiers who live there. It has its own power plant. It has its own water supply. And if you could get past that and get to the vault, the vault door is made of steel and concrete, and it weighs more than 20 tons. In addition to that, no one person knows how to get in. It contains, well, several members of the staff who live there, only they know portions of the combination. And they would need to dial their portion in a certain sequence in order to open the vault. And so to be as secure as Fort Knox can't even compare to the security of your inheritance in heaven. Listen to how secure heaven is. Revelation 21, 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Your inheritance was placed under heavenly guard from eternity past, and it's just as safe now as it ever was. Why? Because God himself does not slumber or sleep. He watches over this inheritance. Now, in a real human inheritance, there can be ways that people can sneak in and get it. The story in The Guardian told about in 2018, a woman who found out her older brother was stealing the family's inheritance. Her father, their father had dementia. And so because the son had a business, legal business arrangement with his father, he was able to siphon off the money without the father knowing. He was living a high life and draining the family's assets. The daughter did whatever she could, and after three years of court battles, she was able to get it stopped, and the court found him guilty, but the damage was irreversible. But Christian, there's nothing and no one that can damage your inheritance. There's no human being, there's no demon from hell, not even Satan himself can take away or harm your inheritance. It is kept safe in heaven for you. And that threefold description is meant to stir in us delight and anticipation and be able to bless God who does this for us. Now, nothing can surpass or squander your inheritance. It's a marvelous truth, but there's one more feature that you need to know about. Not only is your inheritance secure, but you, Christian, are secure. There's a powerful protection. Look at verse 5. You are being guarded by God's power through a faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, it's reassuring to know that nothing can touch our inheritance, but sometimes we may wonder about ourselves. Am I going to fall short of the finish? What if I stumble? What if I get disqualified by some bad behavior? Christian, you didn't start it by good behavior. It's Christ who began it. And he is faithful to complete that work in you. Beloved, you are protected by God's power. That doesn't mean you won't get sick. It doesn't mean you won't be ridiculed or suffer want. But it means your soul is safe. Just as he keeps that inheritance safe, he keeps you safe for the inheritance. Remember Romans 8? Romans 8, 31, it asks, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
There's no charge that can stand against God's people. And then he comes up with more potential problems in Romans 8, verse 35. Well, who could separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Can you think of anything else? Well, then comes the crescendo in verses 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christian, you are safe, untouchable, continuously being protected by God's sovereign omnipotence. Bless the Lord, Christian. This is our God. And this protection comes through the faith that he's given to us. And the faith doesn't depend on how strong it is in you. It depends on the strength of the one you're trusting in. It's a a one who gives you his grace that will sustain you even when things are difficult. It's the grace in which you will stand firm. So Christian, God will keep you for salvation. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. You are being saved from the power of sin. And one day you will be saved from judgment and eternal death that sin deserves. And it's all coming at precisely the right time for you. Christ has made all the preparations. Nothing else is needed. It it is so magnificent that it surpasses your most vivid imaginations. 1 Corinthians 2.9 But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, he's given us a glimpse of it. I want to read this to you. This is what the hope looks like as we come to the end of our time together. Listen to this in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street and of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. His name will be upon the foreheads. God himself will be their light. Ah, beloved, God is protecting us with his almighty power for that day. He who began the good work is faithful to complete it. Now, we get some amazing benefits here and now, but it's nothing compared to what's coming. These four features of our new birth should cause all of us to say, blessed be God. But I'm aware that, friend, there may be some of you here who have not yet trusted in Christ. This inheritance is it's waiting for you. If you will repent today, turn from your sin, embrace Christ in faith, trusting in him alone, the wrath of God will be removed and you will be made a son and daughter to written into his will. You too can have a living hope. Will you come today? I'm going to invite the music team to come up and we're going to celebrate this living hope, our heavenly heritage, our powerful protection it comes from our great author. 
I say, come, let me just close in prayer. Father, I'm, I'm astounded by this truth that you would reveal this to us, us. And this is just the glimpse of the glory that's coming. God, would you please strengthen the weak heart today, the knees that are weak and, and ready to collapse. Give them that amazing joy to rise up and bless you. And for that person who has not yet come to you, Lord, convict them of their sin. Bring them to faith in Jesus Christ even now that they would be caused to be born again into this amazing life and hope and inheritance. We lift our praise to you right now, Father. We bless you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our great Savior. Amen.